you have this one precious life and you have all of these relationships that really matter to you. You have all of these roles that you've inhabited are so core to who you are and what your legacy on this earth is. What disposition do you want to leave these relationships in? And at what point will you say, oh, yep, that's good. I feel really satisfied with that. Like, I feel safe letting go of this life, knowing that my children, um, that I've imparted like all the, the wisdom that I possibly could into the people that I'm leaving behind and that they are going to be able to achieve like a meaningful sense of security and vitality in this life. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to Nursing Uncharted, a podcast that highlights all different types of nursing while having uncharted conversations within our profession. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Make sure to subscribe on our YouTube channel to get notifications for new episodes and episode highlights. Or you can find us on Instagram at Nursing Uncharted. If you have a specific realm of nursing that you'd like to learn about, hear about, um, you can DM me on our Instagram page and I will try to find the perfect ambassador for that field. So this episode, the topic of this episode is so necessary. Um, When I found this woman and I talked to her on the phone, we talked for about an hour just generally about this topic. And I knew I wanted to give this topic the time that it deserves. So we're going to do a two-part series on this. We're going to continue our conversation in the next episode. And the topic is end-of-life care and what that looks like in the hospital and how we can care for these patients to the best of our abilities in the hospital with dignity and respect for this transition um, that can get really muddy in the hospital. Um, So we're going to talk about where the pitfalls are in the hospital and the strain that that process has on nurses now and how we can really shift that to become a sense of fulfillment and um, uh, joy in taking those patients. So here to talk about end-of-life care is the threshold doula, Melanie Sheckles. Melanie Sheckles RN is a death, grief, and trauma educator and guide who's helped hundreds of humans move through, move from fear of death into pleasure possibility, and peace. Through her practice as a death doula, she guides dying people, families, and caregivers through thresholds of profound loss and change towards stability, vitality, embodiment, and trust. She believes that death is a sacred rite of passage, not a medical event, and that even amidst great loss and difficulty, we can each, we each contain an inherent and unbreakable blueprint of health and wholeness that we may return to with deep, consistent care and connection. Melanie is also the host of the Death Jam podcast and community event. So Melanie, welcome to the show. Oh, Maggie, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to be here with you today. Yeah, this is, and might I say, I think this is like, that was like the best intro I think I've ever (laughs) read, read for the podcast. That's such a, that was a great opening. Thank you. I, (laughs) I, uh, am very passionate about what I, what I do. Um, and I love writing about it. So I think that really comes across in my little intro. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed, I found you on Instagram, um, at the threshold doula and, um, you know, just the content that you put out. I mean, it, it, resonates so much with the inpatient setting. Um, and so I, I was like, I have to have her on to talk about this stuff because mm. I moved from, um, I'm, I've been an ICU nurse for a year and a half now and have experienced a lot of this kind of, you know, moral distress that comes along in the hospital. And I, yeah. you know, all of my colleagues too, you know, have this same kind of um, strain. And so I was just really excited to have, to have somebody like you come on to like help facilitate those conversations and just give people kind of a blueprint on like what that could look like in the hospital. So we don't have to be so burned out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, by having, by having those patients in an ICU setting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to it's a lot to be with and a lot of weight to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly when 
when death is clearly what is what is imminent for a person when they're clearly moving into that transition and we're operating from this place of I am supposed to stop this from happening. I'm supposed to be in control. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's it's really a big thing to take on as our personal responsibility. You do have a, there's a, just, you made me think of like a certain circumstance where you have a patient on like four pressers or you like know where this is going and you, mm-hmm. you like it. I've been in the circumstance where I, I, I feel like the care that we are doing currently is futile now. And mm-hmm. I want to kind of transition into, you know, make shifting the focus and making it about the patient and their, you know, about their transition to end of life. And there, there's like a little bit of like, you know, we need to have this conversation because mm-hmm. we need to, shift it back to, to, you know, focusing on what this person is going to want at the end of their life, as opposed to, you know, what are, what, what's the goal here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it can be helpful to get to that, get to that place of knowing what that goal is by even just noticing what you do not want to have happen. Yeah. What is the death experience that you really don't want to have? Yeah. When you think about that fear of death, when you feel that in your body, what do you absolutely not want to have happen? Mm -hmm. And so we can even work backward from there. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about, so when we, when we talked initially, you told me a little bit about what led you to this line of work. So I want to share that with, with our listeners. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your career, your nursing career journey and how that led you to being a a death doula. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, I've been an RN for 10 years. I, um, began my career on a cardiac step down unit. So I cared for some folks who were often very sick, folks who often had, you know, maybe multiple um, life-limiting conditions Mm -hmm. and were frequently very older in life. Um, And they were coming to have heart surgeries, lung surgeries, vascular surgeries, pretty intensive, aggressive um, life sustaining measures. Mm -hmm. And so I named to you that I've, I've seen so many traumatic deaths in the hospital, so many deaths that happen too fast, too soon in the sense that these patients and their families were so utterly unprepared to meet their death. And they, you know, they had, maybe gone through informed consent and agreed to be full code, but they didn't really, you know, they, they had gone over the risks in a checklist in a very rote way of like, Oh yeah, but like, this isn't going to happen to me without really considering, um, what it would be like if they Mm -hmm. were to actually experience those risks. And so, um, those last moments between those people who, who were already dying when they came to us, mm-hmm. those last moments in the hospital with them and their families and with their care team mm-hmm. were very aggressive, um, mm-hmm. intense, um, moments of us, you know, doing compressions, doing everything yeah. we can, um, 40 people in a room shouting orders. Um, And Mm -hmm. so not only did I experience a lot of traumatic deaths, but I also experienced a lot of these people um, coming back again and again. And so um, what I noticed is that for some of them, they were um, returning to a life that felt 
like it had a quality that they really enjoyed that was really Mm. meaningful to them. Um, But for some of them, you know, each time they left and came back there, they were maybe, you know, there were strokes in between. There were Mm -hmm. um, extended stays in long-term care. There were bed sores and deconditioning to be recovered from. Mm -hmm. And so um, along the way, there were all of these like little deaths of different abilities Mm -hmm. and qualities that they were able to enjoy. and and what I notice now reflecting on those experiences is that we were just continuing to um, move away from the fear of death without really yeah. exploring what what we wanted more time alive for. Right. Um, like the communication so, piece of those procedures and thing, you know, that's yeah, it's so key to to really sit down and and talk with patients about, you know, is, what is it that you really, really want? You know, do you want Mm -hmm. more time or do you want, you know, like, what do you want that time to look like as opposed to, you know, these, we, this is just something that we can do, (laughs) you know, and like, we don't, we don't really delve into, you know, I mean, maybe I'm not so much a part of those, like a lot of times that happens like in clinic or, you know, outpatient or, you know, yeah. so it's hard to discern what those conversations look like, but I totally, but I have witnessed them in the hospital and, and a lot of times those communication, those pivotal pieces of communication are, are short and sweet and done, you know, by maybe somebody that hasn't had so many of those conversations, you know, Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. And, and I also just, um, to, to maybe the, um, the, the defense of the people who are leading those conversations in the hospital, um, those conversations are filling a huge gap that in my opinion, they were never meant to fill. So Mm -hmm. they are, I think that there's also important questions around that too, that we need to be answering around like, you know, you, you have this one precious life and you have all of these relationships that really matter to you. You have all of these roles that you've inhabited that, um, are so core to who you are and what your legacy on this earth is. And so knowing that, you know, even if we did everything perfectly here in the hospital, um, that still one day your life will end. Mm -hmm. What disposition do you want to leave these relationships in? What, what, um, how do you want to leave these roles at the end of the day? And, and at what point will you say, Oh, yep, that's good. I feel really satisfied with that. Like I feel safe letting go of this life, knowing that my children, um, that I've imparted like all the, the wisdom that I possibly could into the people that I'm leaving behind and that they are going to be able to achieve like a meaningful sense of security and vitality in this life. And so these are really like big spiritual questions. Yeah. And in absence of, of having those roles tended to, um, in the hospital, we're just like, do you want us to do CPR on your body to keep you alive? And people are like, yes, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? There's just like a lot of unanswered questions. And the primary way that we're relating to death in, in this culture is through the healthcare system. Right. And that puts a huge burden on care providers that, that I don't really think we're adequately prepared to attend to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about, 
I I've said this before. I mean, you know, if you get your, if you do a four year degree right out of high school, then you're you what twenty one years old going mm-hmm. into the setting where you are having these conversations in the worst time in people's lives, and it's mm-hmm. so much more comfortable to avoid those conversations. And we kind of in in especially in a culture where we have just been taught to avoid those conversations and like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just easier to focus on treating and, and healing than to sit in that discomfort of, of having somebody, you know, yeah. at the end of their life to, to ask somebody to do that at 21 years old, you know, it's, it's so hard. It's so difficult to process. Um, and yeah. especially during COVID, I mean, um, mm. we've had, we had so many new nurses, brand new nurses out of nursing school, you know, leave the bedside because they just don't, they didn't have the, the tools to equip themselves to take care mm-hmm. of their own mental and also, you know, to like help facilitate those conversations. And I think that there was a lot of like self doubt or, you know, am I doing the right? Am I, am I doing this right? This seems really you know, futile and wrong that we're doing all of these, you know, interventions on this, you know, 80, 90 plus Mm. year old person, you know, trying to keep somebody alive. And yeah, it's, it's, it causes a lot of this, this whole topic just around, you know, the discomfort in having these conversations, I think causes a lot of burnout in nurses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, something that I've talked about with the nurses that I mentor, um, something that I've talked about on Instagram is, um, just this, this no, this sense that you, you all need to know that when someone dies, it's not your fault. Mm. Everyone needs to like, you know, unless you did it intentionally, then maybe it was your fault. But (laughs) assuming that, you know, you, um, you had the best intentions to show up to your job and to attend to that person. Well, um, you know, maybe it was cancer's fault. Maybe it was COVID's fault. Um, maybe it was diabetes fault, but death in and of itself is a natural and normal part of life. Mm -hmm. Even though we have all of these incredible tools and knowledge and skills to prolong life, death Mm -hmm. is still the inevitable conclusion of life. And so I, you know, just, I encourage people to repeat that mantra to themselves as many times as they need to to remember that death is not your fault. Yeah. Well, and I think we get caught up so much in the interventions of treating people's like pain and anxiety. And, you know, you, you want to tend to those things. And like when you, when you can't, you know, with, when it's like this perpetual, you know, when somebody's looks like they are suffering you know, it's, and you're not able to relieve that with Mm -hmm. your interventions. And, you know, when you're in that mindset, it does, you know, it, it weighs on you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I guess there's two things that I want to say to that. One is that it's, you know, we, we have so much that we can do, um, certainly with, within hospice and comfort care protocols, Mm -hmm. we have, um, you know, we can use really potent pain medicines very liberally Mm -hmm. and still, um, you know, there's, and I worked with, um, a hospice medical director who, actually was responsible for bringing hospice to um, 
the community that I live in. So he had been working in oncology um, and in gerontology and, and later in hospice for, you know, the better part of his career. And he was in his 80s at the time. Mm. And he had incredible knowledge that that I had never even heard of at the bedside, like really avant-garde ways of treating pain. Um, you know, so it was really cool to work with him and, and we, you know, he'd just be like, oh, you've got end stage kidney failure. So we're definitely not going to use like these traditional treatments. We're going to try this instead. And I was just like, wow, that's brilliant. I would have never thought of that. So, you know, there, there are all of these like interesting ways to go about that. Um, Mm -hmm. and yet there's, at the end of the day, there are still times when people are experiencing either physical or existential pain mm-hmm. that in spite of all of our best efforts, we're not able to control. Yeah. And I think it's just really important to remember that, again, this is a part of that person's death. And there are so many ways that we can be present with them mm-hmm. and to support them through that moment and mm-hmm. to, you know, essentially, I don't want to say be their cheerleader exactly, but to just be at their bedside as if they were a laboring mother yeah, and, and just really, you know, um, just really be in support of them. Like this is so hard and you are doing so good. And this is so incredibly big and painful. And I'm Mm. right here with you. Yeah. I'm right here with you in this. I love the, the laboring mother metaphor, like similarity because they're both transition periods. They're both rites of passage and like birth isn't, easy and we know Mm -hmm. that and we know it's going to be painful and we're you know it's just a part of birth really and so you know pain and anxiety is part of death but it's it's something that I think with birth we all kind of um and we're still most people are still very uncomfortable with the thought of being in in pain it gives a lot of people fear you know Mm -hmm. pain during birth but I think it's a lot more um, accepted, I think, than than the pain and anxiety that comes with death. Like, I think that we're still very uncomfortable with the thought of somebody being suffering through death. Yeah. You know? Whereas it it is a part of the, you know, passage. It's a part of the rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is. It is. And, and there, there are so many ways that, that we could perceive that, um, you know, that person died like so bravely, like they were, Mm. you know, so, so vulnerable and so strong throughout that experience. Um, but it can be so painful, I think, particularly for the people who are left behind to have witnessed a very painful death. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And like now, you know, ideally when, when a mother goes through a painful labor at the end of it, she's there alive and well with a healthy baby, not mm-hmm. always, but ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of a painful death, you know, maybe the family, maybe the caregivers are there in the aftermath. Um, and and honestly, I think that um, there there is just this real taboo around death in our culture, yeah. and that's that stigma in and in and of itself isolates the people who are left behind in their grief in yeah. a way that makes it so much harder to recover. We'll be right back to our interview. Grab a cup of coffee, but don't go anywhere. Because we want to talk to you about our podcast partner, American Mobile. No matter your specialty, American Mobile has endless travel nursing opportunities. 
With the largest clinical team of all staffing agencies, American Mobile is ready to support you in achieving your career goals. To learn more about the benefits of American Mobile, like higher earning potential, premium health coverage, and 401k matching, make sure to visit AmericanMobile.com to speak with a recruiter. Again, visit AmericanMobile.com to discover your next travel nursing adventure. Now back to the show. I want to kind of talk about what you think constitutes a good death or maybe an empowering death. Um, and it, what we were just talking about made me think of my own personal um, story. And so I'm happy to share my own personal story with my, my grandfather. I know that you have a similar story where you're involved, you know, um, in, in, um, your family's death as well. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I was, my father, my grandfather passed this summer in August. And I think because, because I had seen so many circumstances where deaths had gone not wrong, but control was taken away from, you know, their, they, in the hospital, a lot of times the patient doesn't have control over how things go, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think because I had that background of seeing so much death in the ICU, I think I was able to have a conversation with him about what he really wants at the end of his life. And, Mm. um, he had stage four, um, head and neck throat cancer that he didn't tell anybody about. He he knew about it, but he knew that he didn't want any any interventions done. Um, and so I, we kind of we found out when we saw him. You know, I think we saw him in November, and then in May he had lost like forty pounds, and we were all kind of like, "Oh, what's going on?" And you know, then we kind of, we, he had a couple scans and found, you know, he had stage four cancer and, but he didn't want to go through any of the treatments. He saw his, his, my grandmother go through that and, you know, he didn't want any of that. And he really wanted to, um, he really wanted, he was a snowbird. He lived up in New York and then he also had a house in Florida. Um, so he was in upstate New York when he was getting really weak and, um, he really wanted to make it down to Florida. That was like, that was the, that was his goal. That was like the most important thing to him was to make it down to Florida, which my grandmother passed in Florida in that house. So I'm like wondering if maybe that was just a connection that he wanted to have, um, Mm -hmm. down there. And we were at a point where he was trying to get my brother to, um, drive him down to Florida and I'm I'm thinking my ICU brain and I'm like okay he's not eating he's like dehydrated he's been to the ER a couple times you know he needed fluids like he's he might go into kidney failure this is like not a good situation where my my non-medical younger brother is gonna take him 18 hours down to Florida this is not something that nobody wants this but I was but I did have a you know, conversation with, with him about, he was very rigid about it. He would like, really, he was like, Oh, you know, buddy will take me. <laughs> and so, but I, but I sat down and I talked to him about, you know, we're all on the same page about what you want. We all want to make this happen for you, you know, mm. to get you down to Florida. We just need to do it in the safest way possible with the most resources you know, and I think that like collaborate that just kind of frankness, I think mm-hmm. with him, but also like the, the compassion to like understand, you know, like we're all in this for you. This is, this is how we want you to see mm-hmm. the end of your life. So, you know, we can ultimately we ended up doing like a medic van a medic van took mm. him all the way down from New York to Florida. And then um, he passed the next day once he was wow. in Florida. He was, yeah. I mean, it was, he was so ready 
to Mm go. Um, And I'm really proud of the way that that went, even though it was really, it was really hard for everybody involved, but my aunts and uncles, you know, the way that we were able to get together and coordinate that, um, you know, for a common goal of giving him what he wanted at the end of his life. I have no regrets about that death. Like Mm -hmm. I have no, you know, I don't, I, he didn't go to the hospital. He didn't, you know, have, and I, and I think so often, especially if you don't have that background, you know, you there, it seems like there's no other choice, but to just kind of prolong the inevitable and then go to the hospital and, you know, pass that way. Yeah. So it, I, I, I think about, you know, the ways that you help families and, and patients kind of facilitate those conversations. And like, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of those things just made me think like, how can we, what, what constitutes a, a good death? You know, like how do we, how do we empower patients and families to have a death that they can look back and be like, you know, I'm, I'm, this was, this is what they wanted. And, you know, I'm fine with, I'm not going to carry this with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love this question. And I think that your, your story is such a beautiful example of, of how I would define a good death, which is really, it highlights the importance of us being in consent with the situation. Mm-hmm. And so your grandfather was able to communicate to you all for me to be in consent with my death. I need to be in Florida. Mm-hmm. And you all were able to say, okay, like we, we respect that. And for us to be in consent with your terms of being in consent, we need that to happen in a somewhat safe and controlled way so that we know that, that no one of us is going to be, you know, stuck in a situation that we're not able to handle on our own. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you had the right fit of support. You had the medical van Mm -hmm. and, and he had the support of his family And, you know, I, I love, I hear stories like this. So, and I've witnessed stories like this so often where a person gets right into that, that place or that Mm -hmm. position or, you know, the right people are present or the right people are absent. And then they're just able to go with ease. Yeah. And yeah, so my, my sense is that consent is a huge part of having a good death. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be this like, um, very idealistic, um, experience. It doesn't have to be like, you know, I was, um, you know, uh, in a forest and I was surrounded by all of my loved ones and the birds were singing though. Mm-hmm. That would be totally magical. And I think <laughs> I would be in with that. Um, but, but yeah, even just like those little experiences of consent along the way are being honored. Yeah. And that can happen in the hospital that can happen in long-term care um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, something that I want to talk about and we'll talk about this in part two, a lot too, is like, how, how can we, you know, take that example, um, and you know, the consent or of death for a patient like how, how, what does that look like in the hospital? You know, like what, what, how, if we're, shifting the focus or maybe the patient is starting to, I think, I mean, the conversations that you, we need to be better about having conversations while patients are, 
are cognizant, I think, mm-hmm. and like so that they can be a part of this whole process before it's up to the family members. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's such a huge piece of it, you know, um, to facilitate a good death, I think, in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And something that you mentioned and I, you, we began this interview with you asking me to tell you my story. Mm -hmm. And like, I think I, I started telling you my story and we, we went on all these like beautiful (laughs) meandering, um, tangents, which is, is totally, I think it was going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but since you brought it up again, um, you know, if it would be a good time, I, I would be happy to finish talking about how I transitioned from working at the bedside into being a death doula. Yeah. Absolutely. Would this be a good time to talk yes. about that? Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So, um, where we left off, I was working at the bedside. It was real intense. Things went down really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I was getting really burnt out as one does, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and what, what that really looked like was there were days when I had panic attacks before I went into work. There were days mm-hmm. when I called in sick because I was so anxious about what was going to happen. And if I would be able to, you know, if I had the capacity to meet all of the demand that was coming at me. Mm-hmm. Um, that also looked like me being really short with my coworkers, with me being really short with my patients. Mm-hmm. I really recognized that my best self was no longer coming forward in that role. And so as, as so many other uh, relatively new nurses, I think I had been at the bedside for almost four years at that point, I went back to school to do a bridge program to become a family nurse practitioner. And, um, and then I took like a part-time job in a long-term care facility. And during this time, my mother, who was 61 years old, um, she had end stage heart and lung disease. Mm. And she was not um, a very good candidate for any sort of transplants. And she was well aware that she would need transplants to to survive ultimately. Um, and she and I had a very complicated relationship. We hadn't spoken in a year um, mm. when I got a phone call that she was in the hospital with um, bilateral pulmonary embolisms, emboli. And I, um, I went to be with her in the hospital. And even though we had not spoken in a year, the times that we did speak, she, she knew that she could be in consent with what was happening to her if she had knowledge about it. For her mm. knowledge was power. Mm. And so she asked me so many questions. What is it like to experience CPR? What happens if the CPR doesn't work? Um, what would happen if I were intubated? Well, what are like, what happens if like that doesn't go well? Mm. Um, you know, what kind of quality of life do people have in long-term care? Do I want to be in long-term care if mm. I were to need that? Um, and so I was able brave to questions to ask. Uh, she was fearless. Yeah. Not fearless, but she was, um, she managed her fear with knowledge. Yeah. 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 And so I was able to ask her questions like if you're not able to speak for yourself, what, how does that affect your needs for care? 
how does that affect your desire to keep on living? Mm. If you're not able to think for yourself or remember what's going on, Mm -hmm. how does that impact your needs? If you're not able to move your body or to physically care for yourself, how does that impact you? What do you want when that happens? And so when she went into the hospital, she was barely able to breathe, let alone speak. And she asked me to speak on her behalf. And that was, in that moment, there was really this profound shift between us where she was at her most vulnerable Mm -hmm. and she trusted me more than anyone else in the room to make decisions for her. And I really just felt in that time so much love and so much forgiveness and so much letting go of any of the old hurts between us. Mm-hmm. And so that, that hmm? oh, I was ahead. just going to say, do you think that because you had those raw, honest conversations, she felt like she could be that, that level of vulnerable? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and through, through my work as a nurse and through my knowledge of the healthcare system and the body, she really developed a strong sense of trust in me as Mm -hmm. like, um, she knew that I would be a powerful advocate for her. Yeah. And so she was able to really say, oh, this person knows exactly what I want and Mm -hmm. is like fully capable and committed to making sure that that happens. Yeah. And, um, and so that's exactly what I did. Um, she, she had a stroke that night. She was flaccid on half of her body. Um, I, I hijacked the code. Um, I took it over as, 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 the, I, as one I see you <laughs> nurse does. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, the, you know, just the, the super uh, incredible, well-intentioned nurses that were taking care of her in this rural North Carolina hospital. Um, they were, um, waiting for, uh, a certain, um, trauma, ner- a trauma surgeon to be available to come in and help manage the code. And, um, long story short, he finally got there and he was like, Oh, we'll intubate her. We'll, uh, helicopter her to Duke and it'll be great. We'll do a thrombectomy. And I'm like, no, no, we won't. Yeah no, we're not going to do that. And so we transitioned to comfort care and, um, we spent the day just surrounding her with love and curling up in bed with her and, you know, rubbing, rubbing her hands and feet with lotion and singing her songs and telling her stories, uh, memories of our time with her that we would never forget. And we called the Catholic priest to give her last rites, as I knew would be so meaningful to her. Mm. And um, and then at the end of the day, when when everyone had had a chance to be with her, um, you know, I I got to choose. I got to be in consent with it, and I, you know, I got to. The nurses just were incredible. They came in anytime I called to say like, 
oh, she's, she's anxious. Oh, she's painful. Um, oh, she needs a little bit more morphine than that. Um, and they just really did whatever I asked for. Mm. And so at the end of the day, I got to say it's time to let her go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so then we discontinued her, um, oxygen non-rebreather that was really keeping her going Mm -hmm. and lay beside her and hold her until the very last moment. And as I process this experience, I really felt my best self was present in that moment, um, in that time with her. And so in that year after um, the death of my mom, I reflected on all the times in the hospital when I was taking care of someone who was on hospice or who was on comfort care. And I just remembered all these really profound moments where that, that part of me came forward. Yeah. I, I am, I, it is a fulfilling thing um, because we move at such a fast pace in the Mm -hmm. hospital and the ability to slow down with those end of life patients and really be able to provide the nursing care that you want to be able to provide for your other patients because of the, the speed that Mm -hmm. is just innately, you know, that happens with, with like hospice end of life patients. It can be so refreshing Mm -hmm. to as, when everybody is on board and everybody's on the same page and this is, you know, where the patient is and, you know, they're on palliative care service or, and they have the medications that they, that they need to keep them comfortable. And there's such a sense of peace and you Mm -hmm. can just be there for them. It, it really, it does make you feel like you're your best self that Mm -hmm. you're, you're doing your best nursing work when you can just all your only, you know, responsibilities is to just care for this other human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a, I experienced a huge shift Mm -hmm. when I went from curative allopathic, you know, fix and control everything. If we can, we should medicine to people are going to die and I am going to just be with them Mm -hmm. through that experience. And in whatever small ways I can just bring stability and peace and ease to that experience. Mm. It's huge. Yeah. It's a lot less to hold. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot less energetic weight to hold. If you're able to be with the, be with the grief and the discomfort that that might bring up for you. And so it's, I don't mean to say that this is like right for everyone, but Mm -hmm. Well, tell me about really what, what is a death doula? I think that that's a good transition into, you know, yeah. Like what do you, do you work, you know, do you work alongside patients or are you more of a resource? You know, do you go, do you work a lot of inpatient? Do you do hospice, you know, outpatient? What does that, what does that look like? Um, yes. And (laughs) 
<laughs> I <laughs> really, um, I think that you will find if you kind of survey the industry of death doulas is that people practice this work in many different ways. It looks very different depending on who's practicing and where they trained. There's not, mm. um, any sort of like national, um, regulatory or, uh, certifying or credentialing body that's really regulating this industry. Okay. Um, which is a, big can of worms that I'm not going to unpack right now, but <laughs> there there's really good things about that. And there's really challenging things about that. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, so I will just speak about, um, the word doula, um, the etymology of that is essentially a woman's servant. Um, mm-hmm. you may be familiar with a birth doula. That's mm-hmm. someone who walks beside, um, a pregnant person, their family, um, their care team and helps the pregnant person to orient towards what their care plan is, how they want this experience Mm -hmm. to go, how they don't want it to go. And, you know, supports them as they need to pivot when, you know, changes come up. Mm Mm-hmm. They might support that person throughout. They might be part of the postpartum journey as well. Mm-hmm. And so as a death doula, I essentially do the same. I support uh, dying people. I support people who are um, at the end of life or who are really just starting to contemplate it and, you know, maybe... I worked with a 20 year old once who was like, my mom has had a couple of, you know, um, close calls with her Mm -hmm. health. And I'm so terrified of death. I want to start dealing with that now. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the work that I do is around helping people figure out what they um, want their advanced care planning to look like. Mm -hmm. We can talk about um, what their legacy is, we can kind of work through those developmental milestones of Mm. the end of life and just help them orient themselves to this kind of landscape of uncertainty. Yeah. I, I love the gap that you fill, you know, like the, the, just being a resource to have those difficult conversations, um, you know, making a space to, for somebody to ask those so immensely important questions that your mom asked you, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just being, being a, a soft place to talk about those, those things. I mean, it's an amazing skill to be able to teach people how to have those conversations. And I think it's, it's interesting how once we have a a circumstance um, that is like within our families that are so um, that it really connects. I think it connects the dots for a lot of people, you know, to be able to, it certainly did for me, you know, when, I mean, I've been having conversations about end of life with patients and families for years, but you know, it puts it back into perspective. Once you have those conversations with a family member, then you can have, then you can like, you know, look back on that, uh, experience and then use that for your patients and families in the future. And that compassion Mm -hmm. that you had, you know, that comfortability to, to ask those, those super important questions, you know, it, it's just amazing how, how, like, sometimes it takes a personal experience, I think, to like get in that mindset and, you know, put yourself in that, in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Even more than the, the, the mindset, it helps, you know, in your body what yeah. that experience is like. Yeah. And so then you can access that mindset, you can refer back and be like, I remember that I, I remember 
what I needed and didn't get, or I remember Mm -hmm. how that felt when that happened to me. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I can, I can show up more fully. I can show up with more than just my intellect in this space, but with my heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you said there are different, there are different, um, levels of, of teaching or certifications within the death doula practice? There's, there's no legal requirement for any sort of certification. Um, you could tomorrow decide that you are a death doula. Mm. Um, that being said, there's, there's so many really well-respected, um, institutions that are teaching this work. Okay. And there are different people who are, um, you know, leading, um, like little circles of mentorship. I also mentor, um, emerging doulas and and nurses that are kind of deepening into their end of life caregiving practice. Mm -hmm. And so there's different ways to really learn these, these skills, including, I would say they're one of the beautiful things about there not being, um, you know, uh, sort of a legal requirement around this is that a lot of this modality of holistic end of life care really comes from, you know, um, from people who carry this, this lineage of work in their own families. Mm-hmm. There are people who have this embodied wisdom from their own experiences because their mothers and their grandmothers and their great grandmothers took care of the dying people in their family, not mm-hmm. as, um, not as a medical experience, but just as a normal part of what you do for mm-hmm. the people in your family and your community. Okay. And so I think that a lot of the, the schools that are teaching this work, um, whether the, the schools draw on this knowledge because it's what they carry or that they've learned it from these other people, it essentially comes from ancestral wisdom very mm-hmm. old ways of tending to our people. Mm. Okay. What is, so how long is, how, like, what, what is, what does that schooling look like? I guess how long, you know, were you in school for, for this? I, um, attended the Conscious Dying Institute and that's in Boulder, Colorado. I did um, about a six-month program mm. that consisted of an intensive um, week-long program at the beginning, a practicum in the middle that was community-based. So I came back home and okay. I did this work in my community okay. with five people. And then I went back to the Conscious Dying Institute for another intensive, long workshop to complete that program. There there are programs that will um, certify you to do this work in a long weekend. Um, Mm. And there's, you'll learn so much really valuable stuff. And I will also just name that much like nursing school, I didn't really learn how to be a nurse in nursing school. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't learn those skills until you're out there doing it. Mm -hmm. And so what I've found was, you know, go to, go to a program. There's, um, the international end of life doula Alliance. There's the national end of life doula Alliance. Um, there's the Conscious Dying Institute. There's Going with Grace, who's an incredible um, teacher of this work and one of those people who carries 
a lineage of of doulaing her people. Mm-hmm. Um, go to one of these programs, learn, um, get certified, and then I I would suggest that getting some good mentorship is going to be really helpful for anyone mm-hmm. who really wants to you know, deep in this work. And a lot of these programs, you actually get continuing education credits for doing this as well. So Mm. you can use it when you have to renew your license. Um, And then the other thing I will suggest is that if you want to do this work professionally, something that they don't really cover in any of these programs is how to, um, how to run a business how to be in business for yourself. And so I wish that someone would have told me before I began, oh, you also might want to do some business training, Mm -hmm. which is something I I figured out very quickly on my own afterwards. But I felt um, that myself and so many other doulas and nurses that I've talked to who have gone into this line of work um, felt pretty naive in the beginning of like, Oh, I'm, I'm taking this program and now I'm a doula and everything's just going to work out. But there's, it's, it's, um, you know, it's an emerging field. So it's not, um, a tried and true path where Mm -hmm. you can just do what everyone before you has done yeah, and get the end result. So for me, my end of my end of life and death doula practice might look very different than someone who's practicing in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, in yeah. Colorado, there's, um, you know, some end of life doulas and death doulas are working as a part of the hospice team, mm-hmm. which is not a thing that they really have um, established everywhere at this point. Yeah. But yeah, it's very progressive. Mm-hmm. That's yes. awesome. Well, I think this is a great place to end our part one. There's, we have, I'm, I, we have so many more things to talk about. So I'm so excited to get into part two. Um, Part two, we're going to talk about the 12 um, ways that we can build a regenerative end of life um, process for for patients and, and how to just, you know, have a fulfilling, meaningful, peaceful transition for dying people in the hospital. Um, so I'm really excited to get into that, but I'm going to say goodbye for now and we will meet back up in part two. Oh, I also wanted to plug if you, um, your death jam podcast. So talk a little bit about, about, your death jam, um, podcast. And then also, um, the, oh gosh, it's the, yeah, the death jam is what we were talking about before with, you know, how sometimes it just becomes kind of a, a health, like a hub for healthcare workers and people that were, Mm. you know, going through their Mm -hmm. experiences. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, um, the death jam podcast is something that is born of, um, an event that I host. So I facilitate Mm -hmm. a monthly, um, virtual community. It's called death jam and it's essentially a space to have a community conversation about our experiences with death and loss. Um, I begin the, the, um, the conversation with offering us a little bit of an energetic grounding practice and just some somatic, uh, trauma informed, um, tools for how we can be with the sensations of fear, um, or any other big feelings that come up for us as we're moving through this. And so this, this helps us to, to be with these things at the level of the body Mm-hmm. Um, before we start running too far away into the story. So, um, sometimes when we have these conversations, we get really up in our head and mm-hmm. before we know it, we've like 
our fear has taken us to like every terrible thing that's ever happened. And so this helps us to just land a little bit in our body Mm -hmm. and return to our breath. And remember that if we're breathing, we're still alive right here. And now there's still possibility. And what I found from facilitating this space is that people often come to it with these big momentums of fear and anxiety, um, and maybe sorrow, sadness, depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we come to this space, we have this beautiful co-creative conversation where we're all essentially like learning from each other's wisdom and wounds that we carry mm-hmm. around death. And they leave the space feeling the sense of pleasure and purpose and possibility inadvertently, like by accident during the pandemic, this kind of became a space for healthcare workers to debrief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recently, more intentionally, I've created Death Jam that is for healthcare workers and caregivers to come and yeah, let's let's share our wisdom and wounds around death. And um, that in and of itself has been a really regenerative space for so many caregivers. Yeah. So that really inspired me to create a podcast. I was like, I want to be able to go deeper in this conversation than I'm able to on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, And to do it intentionally with, with some people whose work I'm really excited about in this field in a way that helps nurses, doulas, and caregivers um, really kind of allow, be with our sensations of fear and trauma and burnout mm-hmm. and um, and move towards that sense of pleasure and purpose and peace mm-hmm. in a way that that really opens us up to living our most vivid and tender life possible. Yeah. I love that. It's Mm. such a necessary, it's so, it's, it really fills a need Mm. that's there. So I can't, I can't wait to, I'm going to come to the next one. I'm going to be present during the next one. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I'm not sure when this one, when this episode will air, but I typically host it once a month. So If you hop over to my website, um, if you sign up for my newsletter, you will receive the 12 holistic caregiving regenerative tips for end of life care. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you will also hear first thing when the next death jam is the event and when the podcasts are available to listen to. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, we will continue this conversation in part two. Melanie, thank you so much for this, for all of just like your wisdom and just great conversation. This is, this has been a really great hour. Um, and I really appreciate this topic and going through everything with you. So I can't wait for part two. Thank you, Maggie. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Nursing Uncharted. To learn more about today's episode, make sure to explore the show notes at AmericanMobile.com slash NursingUncharted. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a guest. If you're a nurse interested in traveling, visit AmericanMobile.com to explore the largest database of travel nursing jobs in the industry and the amazing benefits that American Mobile has to offer. Also, a special thanks to producer Jonathan Carey, assistant producers Katie Schrauben and Sam McKay, and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. Until next time, take care of yourself.